This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Also, make sure to check out and subscribe to our YouTube original channel, UCTV Prime, available only on YouTube at youtube.com slash UCTV Prime. This UCTV podcast is sponsored in part by Audible.com, your destination for the widest selection of digital audiobooks available, including many by guests you've heard here on UCTV. Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com slash UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com slash UCTV. And thanks. Good afternoon and welcome to this 12th public Carter Symposium on Human Origins, Lessons from Autism Spectrum Disorders. And we'll have a, a group of stellar experts share with us what we can learn about the human mind from those who are always unique, totally interesting, sometimes mysterious. And with that, I'd like to hand over to Dan Geschwind, our chairperson. I guess one of the questions that I just thought I would, I would start with is, what is autism and why human origins in a way? Autism is not a disease in the way that we think about a disease. It's a syndrome that involves the spheres of social communication and language. There are the same kinds of genes and processes that are involved in human brain evolution, the evolution of higher cognitive function in humans. Are those the same things that are disrupted in autism or not? My sense is that the advances that we've found provide and that you're going to hear about today, do provide hope, I think, for a better understanding, early diagnosis and treatment of autism, number one. But I also think that, from a scientific standpoint, how one gets to have language dysfunction and social dysfunction, that's going to teach us a lot about brain function. In other words, we learn a lot about the brain also through study of variation in humans, and autism happens just to represent one end of a continuum of normal variation of, of humans. So I have the pleasure of, of being the first speaker uh, this morning, uh, most likely because the human genome is really the place where human traits and, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the aspect of humans that bestows upon us these uh, these. Uh, you know, uniquely human qualities that we have. Incidentally, the human genome is also, um, it's variation in the human genome that actually explains a lot of the, the underlying causes of autism at the same time. So it makes sense that we would start to focus on this. What is it about the human genome that influences human evolution? What is it about the human genome that it actually uh, influences your risk of disease? So I'm going to cover in this lecture some basic understanding of how genes and genetic variation in the genome relate to autism. And then I'm going to jump to a, a more fundamental aspect of human genomics, which is how does mutation happen? And how do patterns of mutation actually influence human evolution and disease? And as you'll see, um, by the time we get to the conclusion of the talk, the two are inextricably linked. 
it's, it's important to kind of re- unearth some of the scientific fact that's been around for decades now. And uh, the ones that are sort of most unequivocal are the twin studies, which back in the mid-90s, scientists had cobbled together identical twins, fraternal twins, and started to look within families uh, to see if there was a genetic contribution to the disease. And it was very obvious early on that compared to the 1% prevalence in the population, if you had a sibling with autism, your risk of also developing autism was about 10 to 20%, 10 to 20-fold higher than the population risk. If you were a fraternal twin of someone with autism, your risk was about the same as a sibling, roughly 10 to 20%. But if you were genetically identical to your sibling, if you were an identical twin, then your risk of also having being on the autism spectrum was 70 to 90%. So this was some pretty compelling evidence back in the 90s that autism, uh, that genetics was, uh, played an important role in, in your risk. Despite this, there was a lot of struggle over the early decade uh, in terms of finding autism genes. Uh, with the tools that we had available at the time, linkage analysis, signals were coming from all over the genome. There was virtually not a single chromosome untouched from linkage studies. When, when intelligent neuroscientists made a hypothesis about a gene that might be involved and one sequenced it in 50 cases, you rarely found a mutation in that gene. And so the candidate gene studies weren't particularly uh, fruitful. What did turn out to be fruitful early on were cytogenetic studies, studies of, of the actual karyotypes of patients, revealed that chromosome abnormalities could be found in about 5% of cases. And also, there were a series of rare syndromes which were starting to pop up inside of the autism population. And this includes Fragile X, Rett syndrome, uh, tuberous sclerosis, and an, a, a few different sort of brain overgrowth syndromes that there are core features to the disorder. But in addition to these core features, which essentially affect one's ability to interact in a human fashion, socially interact and communicate. There are a, a, quite a wide variety of other features which are often associated with autism but are not part of the core diagnosis. This includes sensory problems, epilepsy, uh, intellectual disability, motor problems, and autoimmune problems are frequently reported uh, in cases but are not a defining characteristic of the disorder. So this degree of heterogeneity, the, the, the things that were not core features but were clearly part of the disease in some subset of cases, uh, this, the extent to which this type of heterogeneity was, was occurring suggested that this was not a simple disorder. And I'm going to jump straight to the punchline uh, to try to just give a little foreshadowing of what is it about the genome that explains all this heterogeneity, and it is, has to do with the way the genome mutates. It has to do with mutability in our genome. So spontaneous germline mutation plays an important role in quite a number of human disorders. For a severe neurodevelopmental disorder, for a disorder where if you are affected, the likelihood of, of marrying, uh, holding down a job, having kids, um, is greatly impaired. And so this particular human trait is one which does not tend to select for, uh, that where, where, where the, if a gene carries a lot of risk, it's not a gene that's going to be transmitted over lots of generations. It's a gene that might spontaneously occur in the population, but won't sit around for long. So that's exactly what happens. These kinds of alleles segregate over a few generations, and they're often actually observed as a spontaneous mutation in the patient. Um, in order to understand the contribution of these kinds of risk factors to the disease, we have to actually understand the mutational processes that give rise to human genetic diversity and the forces that, that shape them. So we've kind of, our first insight into this aspect of the genome um, came from some studies that uh, Mike Wiggler at Cold Spring Harbor and myself did in, uh, in the uh, early 2000s 
where a particular kind of variation in the genome known as copy number variation uh, started to become uh, apparent to us as actually a major form of genetic variation. Just to define you what I mean here, every gene uh, in your genome is generally present in two copies, one that you inherited from your father and one that you inherited from your mother. Copy number variation is when the gene on one of those chromosomes could potentially delete or duplicate, can actually vary in the number of copies that are present. So you can have, instead of the normal two copies, you could have a duplication and have three copies, or you could have a deletion, and you'll only have maybe your mother's copy, and you'll only have one copy. Uh, so this is, this is the kind of genetic variation that in the early 2000s we had the ability to look at. Uh, so when, uh, when Dr. Wiggler and I started lo- looking at this within autism, there was one thing that really jumped out to us right away, and that was the fact that if you, if you did genome scans of mom, dad, and the kid, and you looked at the affected sibling, or you looked at the, uh, the typically developing sibling in a family, one thing that jumped out at us was the fact that in cases of autism, we could find a spontaneous mutation that was not inherited from the parent in about 10% of kids. And these are, this is only one class of mutation, by the way. We're not looking at all mutations. We're just looking at big chunks of the genome that spontaneously delete or duplicate. That's present in 10% of cases of autism. When we looked at the healthy siblings, we saw that in about 1% of the time. So there was a tenfold difference in the, the frequency of these things between an affected child and their healthy sibling. And sure enough, we've now looked at this across a lot of autism cases. We've looked across multiple psychiatric disorders, including schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And this actually appears to be a characteristic not specifically of autism, but of, of, of severe neurodevelopmental and neuropsychiatric disorders in general. There's a very significant contribution from rare mutations, including mutations that occurred very recently in the family history. And when you start to focus in on these things, they really start to have, very, A, very significant effects on risk, and also they also have uh, some kind of uh, clinical, they tend to favor certain clinical phenotypes. So here's a nice example. The, this is chromosome 16P11.2. A deletion in this region has, carries a high risk of autism and intellectual disability. So you have about a tenfold increased risk of having significant uh, developmental delay, IQ of 70 or below. You also have significant risk of having autism. Does not carry much risk, if any, of other psychiatric disorders. Now, at the same site in the genome, this is a hot spot where mutations happen frequently. You can also have duplications of the same gene. When you have duplications of the same genes, I apologize, it's actually 28 genes, you also carry risk of autism if you duplicate the same genes. Uh, but there's a difference with the duplication is that it also carries risk of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So you have, you have genes that can delete, you have genes that can duplicate, and you have contrasting sort of clinical presentations for the deletion and the duplication. The deletion is specific to autism and, and developmental delay. The duplication, slightly milder, slightly milder uh, traits, and also a, a broader sort of psychiatric uh, risk. Now, we've looked at other sites in the genome that are like this as well. Chromosome 1 has one of these hot spots where the deletion carries high risk of schizophrenia, no risk of autism, no risk of bipolar disorder. But you flip it around, and the duplication of exactly the same region now primarily associated with autism. So you have regions in the genome where reciprocal changes in the DNA produce reciprocal phenotypes, and we actually have cases where autism and schizophrenia are at opposite ends of the genetic extreme. Another classic example now is Williams syndrome, which some of you may be familiar with and is notable with uh, regard to how, how well-adjusted 
the, the affected children tend to be. This is actually referred to as the hypersocial disease. The duplication of Williams syndrome, significant risk factor for autism. So Williams syndrome and autism are yet another example of extremes. They truly are neurobiological, genetic, and, and phenotypic extremes. Uh, so we've started to look more at the characteristics. Um, head size is significantly affected which is kind of our first link into a neurobiological uh, trait. So deletion of chromosome 16 increases a larger head size and larger brain volume by about a standard deviation, and duplication has a reduced head size. And of course, this is now turning out to be a recurring theme. If you delete the 16p genes, you have brain overgrowth and association with autism. If you duplicate, you have brain undergrowth and more risk of schizophrenia bipolar. Exactly the same thing is true on chromosome 1. The deletion is associated with microcephaly and schizophrenia. The duplication is associated with macrocephaly and autism. So there's a direct link between the genes, and there's a direct link between brain, uh, between reg- you know, abnormal regulation of brain growth and autism. So to conclude this section, there, is, there are regions of the genome that are unequivocally identified, and we're starting to gain some insight into the neurobiological uh, pathways involved and the... Um, uh, the clinical relevance. Now, jumping ahead to the second section of my talk, this has nothing to do with CNVs in particular. This happened to be the first flavor of variation that we could really get a handle on. Um, in fact, there are other flavors of variation in the genome that appear to be doing exactly the same thing. We had four studies published back-to-back-to-back in Nature and Neuron just a few months ago, which clearly showed exactly the same thing is going on if you focus on on changes in the DNA sequence level. Instead of looking at copy number changes, if you just sequence the gene and you look for mutations that are present in the child and not in their uh, parents, there are some of these sequence changes, specifically the ones that disrupt the gene, that have significant uh, increased prevalence in the affected kids. So we wanted to start to get a handle on this. So the contribution of rare genetic variants to autism is determined by patterns of de novo mutation in the genome. And we're now, we're now, so the exome gave us some very important clues. We're now focusing on a whole genome sequencing uh, to try to get a handle on what's really going on, what factors, what, what characteristics in the genome are really driving this, and, uh, and is there, some, is there, something, are there some, some things about the genome that seem to favor mutation in certain regions. We knew that there were CNV hotspots. Are there also nucleotide substitution hotspots? Are there other kinds of hotspots? So we've done this comprehensive study of genetic variation. So we sequenced the complete genomes of mom, dad, and a pair of identical twins, which both had autism, and we did this for 10 different families. Uh, We processed their genome sequences through our internal pipeline at the supercomputing center at uh, UCSD, and um, we've we've, we've comprehensively validated everything by multiple uh, genetic techniques. And obviously, there was one thing that jumped out right away, and you probably heard about this in the, in the uh, media quite recently. It's actually something we got scooped on, because uh, our paper is still under review, and this was published a few weeks ago in Nature. So an Icelandic group showed that if you're an older father, mutations accumulate, and you're constantly dividing spermatogonial cells, and so older fathers give more mutations uh, to their offspring. And uh, this was already predicted going back to 1935, but finally we have the tools to actually look at it, and sure enough, it's true. According to our data, um, a father, every additional year you wait to have your child, that's just one extra mutation in the genome, compared to the average of 50 that are there already. So it, it's not as if older fathers are, are somehow you know, causing autism. That's not it at all. It's a very tiny marginal increase in risk every additional year, year that you wait. It's, 
you have 51 mutations instead of 50. You wait another year, it's 52 mutations. So it's, it's, it's not causal of autism. It simply means that the burden of mutations grows you know, incrementally as men age. Now, in addition to that, there's variation in rate in the population, and most of the variation in mutation rates from one individual to the next is actually explained by their father's age. Now, looking not, at the, not looking genome-wide at the total burden, looking at different regions and looking at the rate within different regions, it appears to be there's actually quite a lot of variation there as well. So there are very hot regions of the genome, and there are some very cold regions of the genome. And we've now tried to use some statistical algorithms to actually make estimates of mutation rate and uh, you, trying to incorporate the intrinsic properties of the genome and, and trying to see how much, of, how much of the intrinsic characteristics seem to explain this regional variation in mutation rate. And as it turns out, we've, done, you know, we've, we've tested all of these various different things, and the things that seem to p- explain it the most are, in fact, you know, where, the, where, the G, where the DNA is wrapped around protein affects how, how likely it is to mutate. Uh, the DNA sequence obviously has an effect on, on whether it's likely to mutate, and uh, recombination rate, so whether or not the gene recombines at a high frequency has effects on how likely it's going to mutate. We can explain about 90% of the variance in mutation rate using this kind of a statistical model. So basically, we're explaining most of the variation in mutation rate, and this is what it looks like when you look around the chromosome. We've never had the ability to, to, to estimate this before, so this is the first time we really can, can see how rates vary. And sure enough, you can have extended regions across a region of the genome that are very hot, and then you can have very cold spots. And now we have the ability to start looking into these hot spots and find out you know, what genes are mutating at high rates, what genes are mutating at low rates. Interestingly, we noticed this region, which is actually associated with Prader-Willi syndrome and autism, and this has a very high mutation rate. I'll, I'll jump, jump ahead to the, to the punchline here. Disease genes are hypermutable. And the more, basically, the more essential the gene, the higher the mutation rate. So dominant, genes that are associated with dominant disorders have, have higher mutation rates. And in fact, essential genes have the highest mutation rates, which was somewhat uh, paradoxical. So to summarize, hypermutability is a characteristic of the genome. And paradoxically, mutation rates are very high in some of our most essential and important genes. So the hypothesis that this raises is that the human genome seems to be favoring mutations within functional elements. And the human genome seems to be programmed, actually, to mutate in ways that are going to actually create biological diversity in the population. So this comes to the notion that basically evolutionary selection for human traits might be a double-edged sword. So once something in the genome becomes important, essential, functional, somehow the genome seems to be adapting in such a way that mutation rates actually tend to go up, paradoxically, at those sites. So that concludes my talk, and I'd like to thank everyone in the lab, particularly Jake Michelson, who did all of the clever statistical work on the project, and of course our our colleagues, Beijing Genomics Institute, for doing all the genome sequencing. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, It's a pleasure to follow uh, Jonathan Sabat and his uh, very informative lecture on the importance of genetics in autism. The other aspect of autism that's fundamental is the developmental neurobiology that underlies the disorder. What is the neural foundation for the very unusual social language, emotion, and cognitive abnormalities that are so prominent in this disorder that have brought all of you here? Now, I want to thank supporters of our research at NIH, Simons Foundation, NFAR, the Peter Inch, 
Family Foundation, Autism Speaks, and the Brain Banks at NICHD and the ATP, as well as Karen Pierce and Taryn and Sierra. So much of the history of autism has been a history of searching for the, the foundational neural defects that lead to these um, behavioral deficits. So what have people found? To begin with, more than 40 or 50 studies have looked at adults and adolescents with autism. And this is the bulk of research that's been done looking at the underlying neural, molecular, and genetic features of the disorder. And what largely has been found is evidence of neuron loss and reduced size. So decreased sizes of a number of different structures, the amygdala, which is involved in emotion processing and memory, fusiform involved in faces, uh, Purkinje neuron in the cerebellum, a structure involved in a, a wide variety of motor and non-motor functions, reductions in the size of neurons, dendritic arbors, and many columns. A story of loss and reduction, thinning of cortex, thinning of the corpus callosum, and activation of proapoptotic molecules. Those are molecules that favor the loss of cells. So the picture of the older autistic brain is one of loss and reduced size. Is that what's underlying autism? Is that how the disorder gets started? Well, we all know that adulthood is not when autism begins. As Jonathan pointed out, autism begins in the first two years of life, where in the first 12 to 24 months, a variety of red flags occur, including reduced social interest, where there's a lack of warm, joyful emotional expression, or responding to name, or sharing emotional enjoyment, or showing uh, empathy and interaction. So there's a lack of these capabilities. And there's also abnormal language development. So what's the origin? What's the developmental origin of this? Well, about 11 years ago, we looked at brain growth trajectories in autism. We began with early life. And we discovered something very surprising. The size of the brain shown over here by age at two, three, and four years of age is larger in autism as compared to controls. So there's actually not loss or reduction, but early on, autism begins with overgrowth in many individuals with autism. But you can see there's arrestive growth, and eventually it looks like there's a decline. So autism is a lifespan disorder that doesn't remain constant in its neuroanatomical basis. When we looked at our data, 80% of our individuals, two and three and four-year-olds, had brain sizes that were greater than normal average the white line being normal mean average for age. This is a child with macroencephaly whose brain volume is about 50% bigger than anybody in this room, a three-year-old boy, as compared to a normal average kid. This finding has been repeated by a number of other groups as well. And in fact, if we look at autopsy data and we look at the percent difference from the normal average weight adjusted for age, we find that autism in two to 16-year-old males, 80% have brain weights that are greater than normal average. A small number have smaller brain weights. So it's not as though all autistic individuals have enlargement, some don't. It's also not as if all autism is macroencephaly. In fact, it appears that there's been a shift upward in the, in the distribution of brain size with about a 10% overall increase on average. So whether it's looking at MRI or looking at brain weight, autism shows the shift upwards in size in many individuals. But that's not true for all individuals with autism. This is the normal control brain size. This is group average brain size for autism across 12 months to 48 months. And this is a genetic uh, defect, a deletion of a synapse gene. In this autistic individual, the brain is not enlarged, but in fact, this uh, synaptic deletion leads to a smaller brain size. 
Nonetheless, when we look across all studies that have been published to date that have statistically compared the size of the brain in autism to the size of the brain in controls, this is what's found. If we order studies according to the youngest uh, ages to studies of the oldest ages, we find that studies that looked at younger individuals tended to find significantly increased brain size in autism as compared to controls. The black are studies that found no difference. They tend to be out here, and studies that found a reduced size in autism tend to be adolescents and adults. So there appears to be a change in overgrowth, arrestive growth, and eventual decline. So what might be the cause of excessive size of the brain in autism? This seems like a very robust phenotype that we should be looking into. We decided that we would look at prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is important for higher-order social, emotion, language, and communication functions. And we reasoned that one good possibility is that maybe prefrontal cortex, which is enlarged in autism, and which is important in these higher-order functions that are aberrant in autism, it might be that enlargement could be due to an excess number of neurons. So we systematically counted the number of neurons throughout the entirety of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex as well as mesial prefrontal cortex. What we discovered in a small sample of autistic young males as compared to young control males was that in dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, there was a tremendous 79% increase in the total number of neurons as compared to the control brain. In mesial prefrontal cortex, a huge 29% more neurons than is found in controls. Now, why is this especially exciting? And the answer is, all the brain cells that you have in your prefrontal cortex, you've had since the second trimester. There is no mechanism for generating an excess of brain cells in postnatal life. So this is the first robust signature that autism begins with disarrangement of mechanisms that regulate or govern the total number of neurons that, you will, that, uh, that the child will have for the rest of their life. So let's go back to just sort of basic normal development. In prenatal life, the number of neurons increases rapidly and reaches a peak in, at the end of the second trimester where there's up to 40 billion neurons in the human brain. And this uh, time of proliferation is really remarkable because at the end of the second trimester, there's a period of loss of neuron numbers, or apoptosis, in which the number of neurons is halved. You go from roughly more than 40 billion neurons to roughly by birth about 20 billion neurons. So clearly, in autism, and after that you retain pretty much the same number of neurons for the rest of your life in prefrontal cortex. So in autism, it's possible that the excess number of neurons could be due to either a, a profound excess in the proliferative um, uh, mechanisms leading to not just a, an excess number as you see in normals, but an excess beyond that excess. Or it could be that in autism, there's a normal number generated, but there's a failure to get rid of the, uh, the extra neurons that are generated in the second trimester during this third late trimester stage of apoptosis. And it's possible that some autistic individuals may have autism for one, others for the other reason, or there may be a combined reason. We have data that we, uh, I'm not going to show you that suggests that there's a continuing loss of neuron numbers in autism. Now, this is especially interesting uh, for the purposes of the present uh, symposium. Where does all this excess likely come from? 
Well, as I said, two possibilities. One is mechanisms that generate and other mechanisms that eliminate. In the mouse, the prenatal brain has these zones, the ventricular zone and the subventricular zone, that are important for generating the brain cells that the mouse ends up having. Of course, the mouse's brain is very small, and if you unfolded a little sheet of cortex in the mouse, it's very tiny. The thickness of the mouse's uh, brain is about the same as yours and mine. It's about 1.8 millimeters versus ours, about 3 millimeters. The reason we all have a big brain is because we have a huge sheet of cortex. If you unfolded the cortex underneath your skull, it would be a large sheet, not a small little sheet like the mouse. And the reason it's gigantic is because in humans, there's been an evolutionary shift to the production of an outer subventricular zone. This unique and large primate-based zone is really, truly gigantic. The reason our brains are large and the way we produce 40 billion neurons in a really short time in just a matter of 8 or 12 weeks is because of this zone. So if there's dysregulation of the process of generating cells and producing more cells, it could be that it's in this unique zone that a failure is taking place, leading to an overproductivity of cells in autism. But in the third trimester, and this is a fetal brain, and this is the brain inside the fetal brain, and if we were to section that fetal brain and look inside, we would see in the uh, at the end of the second trimester and then on into the third trimester, we would see this. We would see, looking at cross-section, we'd see in green, stylized color, is the cortex that you and I currently have. It would be very thin and undeveloped. Cells would be very small, not very many axons. And there'd be roughly 20 billion of these from the back of the head to the front. So frontal areas and posterior areas. But look at this yellow zone. Well, this yellow zone is also about 20 billion neurons strong. And what you can see is not only is it gigantic, but as the weeks go by, it begins to disappear. And eventually, by the end of the third trimester, much of it has disappeared. And what's really interesting here, then, is that this zone, which has as many neurons as the ones that we're going to keep, the cortex, the six-layer cortex, this zone only lasts a few months. So why go to all the trouble of creating such a gigantic structure for just a few months? And the answer is that it's believed that this zone is essential for laying out the initial pattern of neural numbers, neural connectivity, and synaptic patterns throughout the cerebrum, both short distance and long distance. This is the first blueprint that enables long-distance connectivity between cortical structures and between uh, subcortical thalamic structures in cortex to take place. Now, what's interesting about this zone, it's called the subplate. In the mouse, the subplate is a single monolayer. That is just a single a layer of just single cells. It's very small and very rudimentary. But in humans, it has become enormous and is essential for developing all the normal human circuitry that we are familiar with that leads to higher-order social, emotional, language, and cognitive functions. Notice what happens. The part of the subplate that disappears first is posterior, this part back here, the part that's involved in visual-spatial information processing. The part of the subplate that's last to disappear 
is this part up here. That part is responsible for developing uh, the initial circuitry that's part of social, emotional, cognitive, and language functions. The frontal part, and that's the part, this is the part of the brain where we found a 67% excess of neurons globally. 79% here, 29% there. So it's possible that this very unusual, specific um, evolutionary invention uh, fails to do its job, maybe fails to disappear. Maybe the reason it fails to disappear is because it's actually not maturing and developing normal circuitry. So the signals to remove it aren't taking place. We don't know yet. It could be either genesis or apoptosis. So does excess neurons explain uh, autism and the size of the brain? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. If we look at the number of neurons in frontal cortex and we compare it to the overall size of the brain and we look at normal boys, we find if there's not very many, if there's fewer frontal neurons, there's smaller brain weight. If there's more frontal neurons, there's greater brain weight. If there's a lot more frontal neurons, then the brain is much larger. But look at autism. These people out here have twice as many brain cells as these normal individuals. These individuals with autism have twice as many brain cells, and yet they don't have the predicted size of overall brain size. For that number of neurons, their brain ought to differ by this much up here, but it doesn't. So why is that? The answer is very simple. It turns out that there is not a uniform increase of neuron numbers in autism across the brain. There's a non-uniform uh, change in neuron numbers in autism. In green, these areas of frontal cortex show a huge increase in neuron numbers. But if we look at these posterior regions of cortex that handle visual spatial information, they actually show fewer brain cells. So there's a non-uniform pattern of neuron numbers. It appears that autism involves an abnormal patterning of the number of neurons. And this is based on a, not only our studies, but the studies of other individuals. So autism is a very complex disorder in which there's a disruption of the normal circuitry, the normal number of neurons, and the normal connectivity cortex-wide. Not shown here, and uh, somehow I left the slide out, is the fact that all of these different studies, several different groups independently, all looking at the young autistic brain, all find whether you're looking here or looking at brain cells here, that they're all smaller. There's a reduction in the size of neurons or brain cells in autism across the cortex and across individuals who've examined uh, the autistic brain. That suggests a failure of the normal growth and development of the structure. So not only is there a disruption of the pattern, but there's a failure of the full maturation of brain cells and brain circuitry. Is this found only in postmortem data? Well, this is data from looking at MRI using a measure called gray matter. So gray matter is the number of brain cells. What we found, and others have found, is that the amount of gray matter in frontal cortex is greater across all these different studies than is the case occipitally. So there's a gradient of pathology in autism with greater deviation frontally, which we think is due to excess neurons, than there is posteriorly. So what might this be due to? So if we look at frozen tissue from dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, what we found are genes that are abnormally expressed in young autistic males. What do those genes do? Those genes are involved in the regulation of the number of cells and their functional integrity. We found genes that are involved in these genetic uh, processes 
They control the cell production, the number of cells produced. They control detection of DNA uh, replication and making sure that if there is defective replication of, of DNA and there's damage, that it's either corrected or the cell dies. But we found that genes that regulate DNA damage detection and, and repair are turned down. We found that genes involved in apoptosis, that is the getting rid of uh, excess neurons, is turned down. The same with cell differentiation, we've also found signs of immune. We also found that genes in prefrontal cortex that are involved in neural patterning, that is, organizing the right-left asymmetry, for instance, for language, or the anterior-posterior asymmetry with more frontal and fewer posterior, that these patterning genes are also turned down. There's a host of those. So apparently, there's a number of different common pathways, genetic pathways, that are disrupted in this disorder. And lastly, if we take a look at not just the youngest autistic cases that I showed you from that last slide, but if we look at individuals across all ages with autism, young, adolescents, and old, and we ask what are the common denominators across all ages, and we look at the genes that are abnormally active in prefrontal cortex, we find genes that are abnormally active enriching maps or genetic pathway maps that govern the number of neurons. These genes are involved in getting rid of excess or checking for DNA damage or producing cells. We also found uh, cell differentiation genes that are dysregulated. Cell differentiation means let's grow, let's mature, let's become a full-blown uh, mature neuron. We found those dysregulated across. And then finally, immune systems. So autism is a really complex disorder involving disruption of second and trimester processes that establish the foundation of the brain, the number of brain cells, and its pattern of connection. This accounts for why the brain is enlarged, but it also accounts for how it is that there are mismatches in function between posterior regions and anterior regions. Posterior regions that are involved in visual information processing and anterior regions that are involved in more social and communication and language processing. It also points us to the beginnings of this disorder. It's not a, a, a disorder that begins at one year of age or two years of age. It's a disorder that's getting underway in the second trimester and the third trimester. So uh, the foundations of trying to understand Dan's questions and addressing them, as well as Pascal's questions, at the beginning of this symposium really are set by considering this is what the brain is that's leading to the behavior that we'll discuss in the next lectures. So thanks very much. We heard from uh, the first speaker that Carta is particularly interested in issues such as where did we come from and how did we get here? And what I would like to talk about today is addressing those questions not from an evolutionary point of view, but from the point of view of developmental science, from the point of view of a young child development, particularly typically developing children and its implications for autism. So what's the issue here? The issue is that while we can look out and see other people move, we don't just see them as dynamic sacks of skin moving across the earth. Rather, we make attributions to them, such as beliefs, desires, intentions, and emotions that underlie that surface behavior, and we view them as psychological agents just like us. Now, that poses a deep developmental problem. The developmental problem is 
While the young infant may process biological movement, may even be attracted to faces in biological movement, you see the, the dynamic sacs of skin moving, but you don't see or even sense these internal states. You don't smell somebody else's beliefs or their desires or their intentions, don't taste them, hear them, or even see them directly. Nonetheless, young children do seem to make attributions about these internal states, and the issue is, as the, in the first talk, how did we get there? How does this come to be? Children don't learn about this in school, and the research in developmental science is showing that it lies even prior to learning language, and in some days may help, or at least interact with, language acquisition in some very, very interesting ways. Now, of course, our fascination with this problem of other minds um, has been captured by artists over the centuries, and this is a Renaissance painting by George de la Tour, which captures the delicate balance between gaze following, intentions, even intentional actions, even deceit. I want to show you here that we see a young nobleman looking into the eyes of a fortune teller, but while he's looking there, this young woman looks at his eyes, and she's doing so for a particular reason, which is depicted in the painting, and you'd notice if you studied it, and that is that he's read, she is trying to cut his gold chain and steal something valuable to him. The young woman on the left is looking down in, at his pocket because she's, he, she is going to pick his pocket, and her confederate is looking at his eyes because she has her hands out to capture the stolen goods after his pocket is picked. So artists for centuries have captured this human drama, the connection between gaze, intention, emotions, even deceit. They do so remarkably on flat two-dimensional canvases, and the art historian Ernst Gombrich talks about us bringing the viewer's share, our psychological attribution to the painting, which gives us great aesthetic pleasure. Developmental psychologists, of course, need to break down what you see in this painting into simpler elements to study it, and gaze following is one of those simpler elements that has been studied by developmental psychologists and people who are interested in development of autism spectrum disorder, such as Simon Baron-Cohen and others. And it turns out that children with uh, autism are very poor, as you know, have impairments in gaze following. I want to talk about the origins of that a little bit. And before I do, I want to show you what, how we test that in uh, typically developing children. Here is a 12-month-old child in our laboratory sitting face-to-face -face with an adult. The adult turns to the side to look at one object and the typically developing 12-month-old looks to the side as if attached by a bungee cord following the gaze of the adult. Very, very interested in following the gaze, which turns out to be informative about another person's intention and how well a child does this at 12 months of age before they start producing words turns out to be predictive of word growth in other studies that we've done. But the puzzle is, gets deeper and even more interesting because typically developing 12-month-olds do this phenomenon of gaze following very subtly. If you turn and look with your eyes open, they will follow your gaze. If you close your eyes and turn to the side, they will not follow the gaze. They treat it just as a random movement, but not that you're psychologically attached to this inter external object because you've cut off the organs of perception. 12-month-olds seem to know a lot about looking and seeing but they make a very interesting mistake. 
We did a study where instead of closing their eyes, we blocked off the adult's uh, perception of the external object by using an inanimate object like a wall. But in our study, we used a blindfold, a cloth that we could put over the adult's eyes. And we did a control where we had that same cloth on the forehead. It turned out that 12-month-olds mistakenly followed the gaze of the adult, even though their eyes were covered and they couldn't, the adult couldn't see anything when they turned to the side. So the puzzle is, why would a 12-month-old know not to look when an adult has their eyes closed, but make the mistake of following gaze when the adult's eyes are covered by an inanimate occluder, a blindfold? And the hypothesis we came up with is the child may have had self-experience with their own body of opening and closing their eyes and recognizing the effect that their own agency of opening and closing their eyes has on their own perceptions and could use this information to project and understand somebody else's psychological state if they acted like me, if they did the same movements that the self is doing. Now, this led to an, a training experiment, an intervention experiment, and the intervention was if that kind of hypothesis has any merit, if you give 12-month-olds who don't understand the property of blindfolds massive blindfold experience, they should get better. And we did that study, and what we did is we had objects laid out on the table instead of in front of 12-month-olds, and when they looked at the very interesting object in front of them, we put a blindfold in front of their eyes so they couldn't see it. Then we took it down and they fixated another object. We put a blindfold up in front of their eyes so they couldn't see it. This went on for seven and a half long minutes. But we gave this child experience on their own body that the blindfold blocked their view. And then the adult, for the very first time, wore a blindfold herself and turned to the side. And the research showed that children who had self-experience with blindfold no longer made the mistake of following somebody else with a blindfold. Control infants who are given training with a blindfold with a slit cut out in the middle still made that mistake. They, they gave, gave an experience of the black cloth coming up and down, but they could see through it and didn't have the self-experience that a blindfold blocks their view. So we randomly assigned children to this treatment. Those with self-experience that the blindfold block view now made different attributions to others. And that led us to this like-me hypothesis, which I think plays a role in typically developing children. I'm going to make an argument that it plays a role psychologically. It's helpful for understanding children with autism. And the hypothesis is that self-experience in the typically developing case changes, transforms our understanding of others. When others act like me, they have inner states like me. And this can be a process for developmental change. I want to go forward now <laughs> to another phenomenon. The other phenomenon is that we don't just look where other people are looking, but we act like other people act. And young children in particular do that. They mix imitation of others with their own innovations. They get ideas from others in the social context and mix it with their own discoveries and own innovation to plan their action. Human infants, typically developing infants, are prolific imitators. Research has shown that there are impairments on imitation in children with autism. Now, the fact that humans are prolific imitators has been of interest for a long time. Aristotle said this, imitation is natural to man from childhood. One of his advantages over the lower animals being this, that he is the most imitative creature in the world and learns at first by, Im by imitation. Aristotle would have been a good member of Carter. He was interested in where we came from and how we got there, and he thought that imitation this coupling that we have with other people, the perception-action loop 
that is tightly there and typically developing children is important. Imitation is an important social venture for typically developing children because they can learn how to use tools from watching others. They don't have to just independently discover how to use the tools or discover it by trial and error, but can simply use others as proxies, observe what happens in, to social agents in the external world, and apply that to the self, multiplying their learning opportunities, using others as a model for others who are like me as a model for the self, and accelerate learning. Now, we've done many, many studies of imitative learning in young children, and I want to show you a 30-second clip of a typically developing child in my laboratory imitating because you can see the delicate dance between the adult and the child as they are imitating. This was a case where Alan Alda was, came to my lab to do a Nova movie, and we have a little outtake of it that I'll tell you about. Here's a young child. Notice the gaze looking down at the object, up at the person. Down at the object, he puts beads in the cup. The young child doesn't have any linguistic description of what to do. We didn't tell her what to do. She simply watched. Did the same thing and was quite happy with herself. <laughs> then I take a camping cup and I do something unusual. I turn it over squash it with my hand. She looks at the object, the person, the object. <laughs> and she does the same thing, imitating. Now, he pulls apart an object that we built on our lap, pulls it apart. She looks at the person, the object, the person. Good pop. <laughs> then I asked the movie star to do an unusual gesture we've done in my laboratory that we've shown babies imitate, which is to touch this with his forehead. She's never seen such a thing. <laughs> do you want to turn? <laughs> and she does the same thing. The ability to imitate is profoundly important for typical human development, and they are drawn to be like the other person. They see others like me. They want to imitate what we do and become little members of the culture. You can see the exchange of, in looking between the object, the person, the object, to figure out when it's their turn and so forth. But imitation does not just begin at one to two years of age. We tested the origins of imitative ability. And some of you may know about this research that we published in Science showing that two to three week old babies, when they see an adult poke out the tongue, will poke out the tongue, open up their mouth, even purse their lips. Babies this young can't act on objects, but nonetheless, they're socially connected to others. After doing this research, I was asked from my, by my colleagues whether this was there innately, whether this was there at the moment of birth. Uh, this study in science was two to three week old, so we went into the hospital and tested in two studies babies that ranged from 36 to, I mean, average 36 months of age, and the oldest child was 72. The youngest was only 42 minutes old at the time of test. I want to show you a picture of a 19-hour-old baby girl wrapped in a hospital blanket where the adult is sitting with a passive face, then does this very strange biological motion of putting out his tongue. The baby looks, eyes converge at the odd biological motion, and she responds with tongue protrusion. The adult opens up his mouth. The baby's eyes again converge, and she responds with mouth opening. 
So in the typically developing case, there is a fundamental connection between people, a social connection that already exists at birth, where children can recognize like me others and make mappings between the body movements they see and body movements of their own that they can't see themselves make, but they can feel themselves make through proprioception. And our hypothesis is there is a perceptual motor matching ability a cross-modal matching ability that allows the baby to feel their own body movements. Their body movements are not unperceived by them, they're simply unseen by them. They can feel their own movements and make this match between self and other. Now, as I said, there have been many people studying the relation between uh, imitative development in children uh, with autism. Sally Rogers and many other people have done excellent work. Jerry Dawson and I published a study uh, with Karen Toth in 2006 showing that if you measure imitative uh, responses of young children at uh, four years of age, their growth in social communicative function as measured by uh, Vineland instrument can be predicted by how well they're doing on imitation and some other measures of toy play. Taken jointly, it makes a beautiful prediction of how well these children will be doing on measured by Vineland at six and a half years of age. These were 60 children and published in, uh, in the journal shown. But I want to jump forward now to the fact that we don't, as typically developing human beings, only use gaze and imitation. We also modulate imitation by emotions, by people's uh, emotional reactions to the actions that are performed, that are shown. If we see somebody else in the world react negatively to another person's act, we're loath to imitate that. So we're not just automatic imitation machines. We self-regulate, and that is an interesting brain system in itself. We regulate whether to imitate by what the emotional reaction is. So here we have a study where we're integrating emotions, gaze, and imitation all in one, and I want to tell you about the study. What we had as an adult uh, show an 18-month-old child what to do with an object, in this case use a tool, a stick, to, to push a button to make a sound happen. And then Nina came in, a confederate, and was very angry at the adult. The baby watched wide-eyed, and I want to show you what happens. Look at this. See? Here's the 18-year-old. There. Now, we know from control studies that the baby wants to imitate this and would tend to, but here comes Nina. I'm going to sit here and read a magazine. Okay. That's Nina. Nina's going to sit and read a magazine. Nina, look at this. That's aggravating. That's so annoying. Oh, I thought it was really interesting. Well, that's just your opinion. It's aggravating. Okay, the 18-month-old was watching wide-eyed at this social interaction. We gave her the tool. Wouldn't you love to have a brain measure at this moment to figure out what's happening neurally, something we plan to do? Now, there are two hypotheses about what's going on very briefly. One is the baby might just be shut down because she saw anger, and the other one is she might be able to integrate imitation, gaze, following, and emotions. We think it's the latter. The way we tested this is we had the adult get just as angry at the baby and then leave the room. 
So the baby had experienced the negative emotion, but the adult wasn't there to watch the baby. And what the 18-month-old baby did is look to see the adult was out of the room, picked up the stick and did it themselves. So I'm going to skip in the interest of time those slides and just say we are now looking at neural bases and neural correlates of imitation in 14-month-old babies using EEG setup. This is collaborative work with Peter Marshall. So last two slides. The like-me hypothesis is a hypothesis about development, and I think this pathway, behaviorally, pathway may be impaired in children with aut uh, autism. I believe to begin with, typically developing infants have an action representation system where there's an intrinsic connection between perception and production of acts. And we're beginning to learn something about the neural basis. But it is manifest by newborn imitation. At the moment of birth, there's a connection between perception and production. Then with experience, babies get first-person experience. They act in the world. And they, they know what their actions are. For instance, they tried to do something and it failed. They can detect their intentions, their own intentions, their internal states, and the behavior that's a manifestation of failing to do something or trying to grasp something. There's a behavior in an internal state. With this first-person experience, they now can recognize others who act like me, others who generate that same behavioral state, and they make an attribution that people who act like me have internal states like me. Now, this is a projection from self to another, a generalization from your own internal states, given a sense of behavior, to somebody else's that may not be uh, intact in children in the same way with children with autism. My final slide is in this science paper published with two scientists uh, down here in San Diego. We talked about a developmental approach for perception, action, coordination, and its implications for uh, atypical development and bringing together multiple disciplines. By looking at how children learn socially, we'll not only know more and learn more about them, but we'll learn more about ourselves, and perhaps we'll be able to address the Carter questions. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.